And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. Hello, and welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. I am your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg. It really feels like once you have a kid that starts going to school that colds just kind of circulate throughout the house so that, you know, one person has it now and then it rotates to the next and I swear it's like it never stops. It's a never-ending cycle of colds. So I thought I had a head cold, but nope, turns out it's COVID. After almost two years of avoiding it, it's finally gotten into my house, but all things considered, I feel pretty good. Everybody else is doing pretty good too, so I think the, the moral of the story here is to get vaccinated And uh, the show must go on, so if, you know, I sound a little stuffed up, that's why. Today's episode is a special one. No guests, just me, as I talk about my top five films of 2021. But that's not all. I've got some superlative categories like top performances, male and female, best action scene, best fight, a couple other categories that I've blatantly ripped off from other shows. I've also got the five worst films I saw this year and the five films that I'm most looking forward to seeing in 2022. So lots of movie goodness in this episode as we reflect back on the weird year in movies that 2021 was. Before we get to those, I've got some new reviews on Apple Podcasts that I'd like to read and a couple of things that I saw this past week. But even before we get to those, I've got an announcement of sorts that the show is going to change a little bit going forward. Running a weekly podcast is a lot of work, especially when you're doing it all solo. The amount of time I spend sourcing guests, researching topics, which really is the fun part, watching movies, recording the show, editing the show, and then doing the social media stuff to promote the show. It takes a lot of time. And I've got a full-time job, I've got a wife, I've got a kid, and they need me too. The amount of work that goes into producing what I think is a quality show can be pretty stressful. In addition to my normal responsibilities, I also just started writing a new screenplay, which I'm really excited about. And there's some really cool extra content that I'd like to do with this show that I'll probably announce soon. But all that being said, I didn't want to stop doing Force 5, but... Force 5 is going to be switching to a bi-weekly frequency. So same show, but once every two weeks instead of every week. Now, I know this is probably going to disappoint some people because everyone's got their own change curve, but it's best for my mental health and my family, and I think it'll result in better quality shows. It'll allow me the time to spend with my kid, my wife, to write, to do the other things I have in mind for F5 and to guest on other podcasts as well. So... Don't be alarmed when you don't see a show pop up next week, and look forward to my episode with musician J-Zone two weeks from today. That one's already been recorded. It's really good. It's really fun. All right, so that announcement out of the way, I got a couple of new reviews on Apple Podcasts. This one is from The Man, The Pete. He says, this is in my top rotation for movie podcasts for good reason. Top half of the show is a thoughtfully presented recommendation or warning segment, followed by a top five list about movies with Jason and a guest. The movies vary widely since anyone can guest host, and I always walk away from an episode with a new movie or two on my to-watch list. And Walk the Cinema writes, Top 5's about movies. Can't get much better than that. I agree with you there, Walk the Cinema. New topics and new guests each week and just keeps it more interesting. I keep finding more Top 5's that I want to listen to. Thank you for those reviews. I'm going to start reading these on air, so uh, if you want to leave a review, Apple Podcasts or Spotify are the place to do it. 
Because uh, it's just me today, I don't know how long the main show's gonna run, so I'm gonna give you two reviews of things I saw this week. The first is from 1995. It was John Singleton's follow-up to Poetic Justice and Boys in the Hood. It's called Higher Learning. It's different here than I thought it was gonna be, you know? Seems like everybody's sticking to their own. People don't realize how far down the drain America's gone. Columbia Pictures presents a new film from John Singleton. Information is power. This is power. You're dead. There are many ways to fight a battle. Some people use their mind. Some people use their fists. What do you want to do, college boy? In this true ensemble drama, Higher Learning follows three very different journeys of three freshmen as they start college at the fictional Columbus University in Los Angeles. Back when I saw the movie Crash by Paul Haggis in, what was it, 2004, 2005, my critique of it was that I felt like it was adapted from a racism pamphlet that you might see in a college guidance counselor's office. And Higher Learning feels like Crash, but a little bit cooler and packed with as many other social issues as possible. Our first stereotype in this movie is Kristen, played by Christy Swanson. She's the naive white girl whose family was once rich but now has to deal with, oh my god, her dad being laid off. She's the, why can't we all just get along person, who has also had to deal with rape at the hands of a frat boy and has to reckon with her sexual confusion once she meets Taryn, a young Jennifer Connelly. Speaking of, Christy Swanson had such an odd Hollywood career, now that I think about it. I remember she was the female lead in a lot of films in the early 90s, like The Chase with uh, Charlie Sheen, Hot Shots Part Two, also with Sheen, The Program, and of course Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And then after the combination of The Phantom in 96 and Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag in 97, her career just fell off a cliff, netting her roles like Woman in Car in an episode of One Tree Hill and the voice of female scientist in the video game Crisis. But according to IMDb, she's still acting today, which is great. Our second stereotype here is Malik, played by Omar Epps. He's at CU on a track half scholarship and at first takes his educational opportunity for granted. He starts a romantic relationship with another track star at the school, Deja, played by Tyra Banks. His internal struggle is caught between taking advantage of his opportunity to earn an education, something that Deja's been pushing him towards, and a violent proclivity brought on by hanging out with another college student named Fudge, played by Ice Cube. Fudge is probably the most perplexing character in this movie. By all accounts, he hates school and resents the establishment, but is also said to have been there for six years. So for all of his yapping about knowing how things work and posing as a smart dude, it seems like there are some evident cracks in his own logic. The third character is Remy, played by a young Michael Rappaport. He's an out-of-towner from Idaho who slides way too easily from being kind of socially awkward to going full Nazi. Out of all the transformations of thought in this film, his was easily the least believable to me and felt the most rushed, as a skinhead recruits him from the steps of the school by inviting him for a beer and then just talking about white power stuff and then seemingly the next day he's a skinhead reading Hitler's literature. Finally, the lone adult in the film is Professor Phipps, played by Lawrence Fishburne. He's a political science teacher who's kind of the voice of reason, if you can figure out what voice he was going for. He has one of the weirdest accents I can remember listening to on screen, which sometimes sounds like Jamaican and sometimes sounds like he's supposed to be from Africa. He serves as this kind of grounded touchpoint for the audience, spouting moral guidance like one's primary purpose at university level is to learn how to think. 
as a movie, higher learning is a mess. It tries to tackle so many different things at once that a lot of it feels really rushed and half-baked. The characters don't feel fleshed out and appear as kind of caricatures based on stereotypes. Even the side characters like Bigot Security Guard and Frat Guys have zero depth. It's not without its merits though, the acting from Epps, Swanson, and Rappaport are engaging, and Ice Cube is great as Fudge. The soundtrack bangs and the movie's shot well. It's even more interesting if you think of this film as a companion piece to Clueless, the other grittier side of the coin, as both films came out around the same time in 1995. As the movie comes to a close, you'll realize that higher learning doesn't really have any surprises. As the melting pot that is Columbus University turns from a simmer to a boil, you know that, just like in Boys in the Hood, there's going to be some major explosion of violence during the climax, and you'll have a pretty good idea of who's going to be delivering said violence, and probably who's going to be on the receiving end. It's a movie that's one of those instances where the parts are greater than its sum. The cast is terrific. There are so many other small roles I haven't even mentioned, like Busta Rhymes is in there. His name in the credits, by the way, is spelled with a Z. And a young Regina King is in here, too. And aside from Fishburne and Banks, the actors are all tremendous. I think the main thing I took away from this film is that since this was made in 1995, nothing has changed in this country. Looking at it as a microcosm of the United States, clearly the intent as we open on an American flag and see them repeatedly through the film... We still face the same issues today with the same lack of accountability. There's a scene in which a black man is beating up a white man who had just delivered a devastating act of violence in the school, and the security guards rush up and start beating down the black man with nightsticks, and it really just kind of made me sad. Nothing has changed. The film ends with one word on screen, unlearn. But will we? Ever? The other film I saw this week is a little more light-hearted, a little more on the fun side. It's one that I have seen before but haven't seen for a very long time. It's Ninja 3, The Domination, from 1984. He is the most feared and powerful warrior. A ninja who breaks from ancient tradition and explodes onto America. His soul possesses the body of an innocent woman and transforms her into a lethal assassin. Who are you? A young telephone company employee is infused with the spirit of an elite ninja warrior. Now she's killing the cops responsible for the ninja's death and she doesn't even know it. It's up to another ninja and a bonehead cop to get rid of the spirit so she can get back to aerobics class. Ninja 3 is obviously the third film in a trilogy of canon ninja films from the early 80s, none having anything to do with the others aside from featuring ninjas. And to be honest, this one feels like the script started as an exorcism movie and then was modified to include a ninja, a choice that honestly probably made it a lot more entertaining. The film starts off with a salvo as this dude in a business suit walks into a cave, dusts off some hidden ninja gear, and then carries out an assassination on a golf course. Now, I've always associated ninjas with being silent assassins, killing from a distance, but if up close and personal deaths are necessary, they're able to do so with nary a trace. But not this ninja. He scampers across the golf course, crushes the ball with his bare hands, and instead of just chucking a few ninja stars from the bushes, he comes out sword swinging, killing a whole golf party. Apparently, one of them's this important scientist that we never hear about again. This, of course, leads to the cops coming out in droves, and then we get to see him slice up almost all of these cops. And I mean, it is a 
massacre. Cops on foot, cops on motorcycles, cops in cars. At one point, he cleverly shimmies up a palm tree and is completely hidden. It was actually a really great hiding spot. And I thought to myself, well, I guess he's just going to chill up there until they give up and leave. Nope. He jumps from the palm tree to a helicopter to murder those cops, too. You're not even safe in the air. In the end, the police are too much for the ninja. They circle him, blast him to death three times. Yeah, they got to kill him three times because he's some kind of supernatural force who cannot be stopped. But just when you think he's dead, he drops a smoke bomb and disappears into the Phoenix Desert. Probably could have used that trick from the start, but who really cares? We're watching Ninja 3. Where'd he go after he dropped that smoke bomb? Well, we see his shambling, bullet-ventilated corpse stumbling into the path of Christy, a telephone repair agent and fitness nut who doesn't, in her words, use soft drinks. She's drawn the short end of the stick and has to repair a phone line in the middle of the desert. Hope she brought a lot of water with her. Anyway, he gives this ninja sword to her and then just dies. Then as she gives her statement to the cops, seeing as she was found next to a dead ninja, we get to meet Officer Billy Secord, one of those responsible for blowing him away. Officer Secord is the worst, continuously trying to pick up on Christy as she sits at the station for questioning, going so far as to try and bribe her with a pocket full of loose, lint-ridden candy, like he takes his hand out of his pocket and candy just goes pouring onto the floor. Kids, never trust a police officer who walks around with a pocket full of runs. Anyway, you'd think he'd be the first to die, but he actually ends up being her love interest in the film, and it's the one major criticism I have here. Christy seems like a pretty well-put-together strong woman, and to introduce this chode as her savior seemed really stupid, and he doesn't have one redeeming quality about him. The rest of the film sees one cocaine-fueled encounter after the next. Christy is harassed by some thugs outside her jazzercise class as 15 people just stand back and watch. What an embarrassing group of onlookers not moving a finger when four bodybuilders are harassing and physically assaulting someone. Luckily, Christy's new ninja spirit takes over and she beats the hell out of him. We get a lot more of Christy going full ninja, but we also get a scene in her apartment that sees an arcade machine shooting lasers into her eyes and talking to her, and an exorcism scene gone wrong inside of a Japanese massage parlor. We also get this other ninja who sports an eye patch and inserts himself into the hijinks later on in the film. And I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the sex scene, sex in quotes, between Christy and Officer Chud. After he drives her home one night, she says, I don't have coffee because it's bad for you, but I've got V8 if you want to come inside. And I know Secord's thinking, cool, I'm definitely down to come inside, but I will absolutely decline that stupid vegetable juice. And then when they start getting freaky, she legit pops open a can while on top of him and pours it all over her chest like it's hot. <laughs> and it kind of is. Ninja 3 The Domination is a stupid, nonsensical blast from start to finish. In terms of action and sheer ridiculousness, it never really tops its opening scene, but that banger opening will have you on a high well into the film anyway. It's got ideas that outweigh its budget and awful production value, to the point that in the background of one scene, a gaffer drops his sunglasses into frame and they just left the shot in the movie. And there are continuity issues left and right, but in terms of pure how did this get made entertainment value, it doesn't get much better than this. I'm thirsty. I'm going to go grab a V8. Check that Instead of V8, I'm going to get a cup of coffee and a slice of pie because today's episode is sponsored by the best place to enjoy both of those things, the Double R Diner. Located at the corner of Main Street and Falls Avenue in Twin Peaks, Washington, it'll only take one visit to turn your breakfast into an obsession. Sure, the Double R has all the diner staples you know and love, omelets, French toast, all that stuff, but why not have them all with the Woodcutters Combo Breakfast? Or stick around for dinner and order a T-Bone or the best chicken fried steak in the Northwest. And you're not going to want to leave the Double R without trying a slice of their famous pies. So what'll it be? 
huckleberry, gooseberry, lingonberry, or a berry that you might actually think exists, like a strawberry, cherry, make sure to grab a slice to go too, because you're definitely going to want more than one. Stop by during your next murder investigation and tell Norma that the Force 5 podcast sent you for a cup of joe on the house with any slice. The double R. What do the two R's stand for? Really good. It's the first ever F5 end of the year awards show. And I must make a disclaimer. There are a few films from 2021 that I have not yet seen that I really want to and just haven't gotten around to. So those that seem right up my alley that I have not yet consumed are The Green Knight, Licorice Pizza, and The French Dispatch. Those are the three that really come to mind. There are also a lot of films that I just have no interest in seeing because I don't normally sit down for straight up drama films. So if you're new to Force 5, just know that my tastes skew towards genre and action films. Before we get into my top five films of the year, we're going to go over some runners-up, of which I have five, so I guess this is more like a top ten, but this show isn't called Force 10. At number ten, we've got Nobody. Nobody is an action film from the mind that brought you John Wick, and it's pretty similar in terms of structure and plot, but god damn was it fun. I never thought I'd be able to take Bob Odenkirk seriously as an action star, but this movie will change your mind. You also get to see Christopher Lloyd blowing people away with shotguns, and you can't go wrong with that. It's got an awesome climax, all kinds of stuff happening, good good blood effects, good gore, a great car chase. This movie was just so much fun, and the Blu-ray has some excellent director commentaries as well, if you check those out. It's got some great extras, a great package by nobody on 4K. At number nine, I've got Candisha. This French horror film is a new spin on the old Candyman formula. It's about a group of young women who accidentally unleash Candisha, a man-murdering spirit who, once unleashed, is nearly impossible to stop, leading to some unforeseen consequences for the men around these three women. Really bloody, really scary, just all around a great horror film, and definitely the best straight-up horror movie I saw in 2021. At number eight, we've got our animated film here, The Mitchells vs. The Machines. This one is from the people behind Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It was inventive, the animation was fantastic, it had a great message, and it was really, really funny. That dog just killed me. I think I liked it more than my kid did the first time that we sat down to watch it. It's just an absolute blast. I liked it more than anything animated that, that Disney or Pixar came out with this year. The Mitchells vs. The Machines. Just a really, really fun time at the movies. At number seven, I've got Psycho Gorman. Anyways, Alistair, this is Psycho Gorman, or PG for short. Silence! Okay. We brought you some reading material, PG, and TV to watch. Did you sleep okay? I'm sorry we didn't bring any pornos. Petty displays of wealth. How can your short lifespans allow such narcissism? I do not care for hunky boys. What do I? This movie felt like it was made for me. It nails the horror comedy genre as these two kids accidentally unleash a monster who is bound to the annoying little girl. There are some laugh out loud moments in here. The parents are just like kind of bizarre. It has some shocking gore as well. The low-budget monsters only add to the charm that you get to see about, I don't know, 60% of the way into the film. Psycho Gorman's just a blast all around, and I cannot say enough good things about it. If you're into horror comedy, go check out Psycho Gorman now. 
And rounding out the honorable mentions, at number six, we've got The Suicide Squad. What a directional change from the first Suicide Squad, which I thought was dreadful. Probably one of the worst movies I saw that year that it came out. This one took full advantage of its R rating, which I, of course, appreciated. And I had a lot of fun with its characters. The cast was great. I feel like everybody dove right into making something that was just very enjoyable, very fun. It's also got some great creature effects along with some absolute carnage and led to a Peacemaker TV series, which I haven't checked out yet, but I need to. Looks great. John Cena as the Peacemaker, just a scene stealer. So the Suicide Squad is going to round out the honorable mentions. Here are the top five films of 2021. At number five, we've got... The Paper Tigers. One, two, three. No more challenges. Kung Fu without honor. It's just fighting. Three tigers, baby. Goddamn! Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. How about taste, old man? Dad. Yeah, buddy. Do you know any kung fu? I'm retired. Who's the old guy? That was our teacher. We called him Sifu. You didn't hear. IMDb lists this as an action comedy, but to me it feels more like a hangout movie between three old friends who have come back together after 30 years after they find out that their kung fu master has been killed. This is a breezy watch with some genuine comedy and some really great fight scenes that feel realistic based on the challenges that each man is saddled with as age and experiences have taken their toll. It's also got a lot of heart that comes with aging and realizing who you are now versus who you were then, that that hubris, that confidence that wanes over time as your bones start to crack and creak. Danny, who's one of the main characters, is grappling with prioritizing his work over his relationship with his son. Hing, another character, is battling a lingering knee injury that he won't admit has all but killed his martial arts career. And then there's Jim, estranged from the other two from a moment in their past. The characters are the real focus here. Even a side character named Carter, who was once kind of a perennial loser versus the Tiger Trio, has since taken over the dojo, and he gets some really great moments. And that being said, the fight scenes are fantastically choreographed and feel like they carry weight, like you feel those kicks and punches. It also takes an unusual martial arts stance when it comes to films. I'm so used to parents in movies telling their kids to turn the other cheek and walk away, but in this film, the message is sometimes... Somebody just needs to get their ass kicked. And I really appreciated that. That's The Paper Tigers, directed by Bao Tran. This one is just a blast. Uh, highly recommended. You can find that on Netflix now. At number four, also on Netflix, we have James Samuel's directorial debut, The Harder They Fall. Proof is Buck. Man, old devil. This is going to be Buck's last day amongst the living. What exactly did he do to you? Call it a professional robbery. I know who you are. That love, the outlaw, hunts down those who trespass against him with no mercy. Where is he? Where is who? Your boss. My boss. Clearly, you don't know me. The Harder They Fall is about an outlaw who discovers his enemy is being released from prison, so he gets a gang together to seek revenge. 
This is a Western with a plot that feels like pretty well-worn revenge film territory, but somehow James Samuel made this feel fresh, and I think there's a couple reasons why. The first and most important reason is because of its all-star, all-black cast, consisting of, and as I rattle off these names, it's just amazing that he got all this talent in one film. You get Jonathan Majors, Idris Elba, Regina King, Zazie Beetz, Delroy Lindo, Lakeith Stanfield, R.J. Seiler, and... Daniel Deadweiler, and there's not one weak performance in the bunch. I seriously cannot pick an MVP because everyone in the film gets a chance to shine, and all of their personalities are so different and so fun. The film also looks absolutely gorgeous. It's filled with dazzling cinematography with colors that just pop right off the screen and a set design that needs to be seen to be believed. There's a moment in which the characters roll into an all-white town to rob a bank and literally everything we see is white. And it looks amazing contrasted with the colorful nature that we've seen up to that point. Something that would normally seem boring and plain in this film just seems to pop right out of the desert. And for as fun as this film is, for as much fun as it's having, it's also very violent, and people die unexpectedly. I was actually pretty affected at one point when one of my favorite characters in the film just got a bullet in the head out of nowhere. No one feels safe. The consequences feel real. There are also some great shootouts for action fans, a very memorable scene on a train, which is just ugh, one of my favorite scenes of the year. And it also has an outstanding soundtrack, Jay-Z. Shout out to Jay-Z, a great track on there. In terms of fun movies, I only had more fun with one other film, which is later on in the list. I'll talk about that here in a bit. That's The Harder They Fall at number four. At number three, I professed my love for this when I reviewed it on the show. There's no way it wasn't making it into my top five. Nicolas Cage's Pig. This one's directed by Michael Sarnaski. The film is about a truffle farmer named Rob who is assaulted, and in the process, his truffle pig is stolen. With the help of his distribution contact, Amir, they head to the Portland restaurant scene to find out who's responsible. I said it in my initial review, but I would be shocked if Nicolas Cage wasn't nominated for an Oscar for his role in Pig. This man can act. Hell, he's already got a Best Actor Oscar sitting on his mantle, but if you're one of those younger Cage fans who's used to this now trendy Nick Cage freakout thing, you're going to be disappointed here. This is Cage being subtle. This is Cage being cerebral. This is Cage at his best. There's a scene in this film that people have been talking about for months, but if I was to have a best scene category, the scene in which Rob and Amir head to this fancy upscale Portland restaurant, confront Chef Finway, would win, and it wouldn't even be close. It's the on-screen power of the conversation on full display, as Rob stares into Finway's eyes, telling him what he needs to hear. And you see Finway's smile slowly fade, and you can virtually see his soul flying into the nethers, while Amir awkwardly watches a compassionate master at work. It is just mesmerizing. Well, uh, we're interested in taking local ingredients uh, native to this region and, and just deconstructing them, you know, making the, the familiar feel foreign, thereby giving us uh, an even greater appreciation of food as a whole. This is the kind of cooking you like? It's cutting edge. It's very exciting. Exciting. I mean, everybody loves it. You like cooking it? Absolutely. Derek, what was it you always used to talk about opening? Wasn't it a pub? Everyone loves it here. It's, this is a huge success. Why didn't you open your pub? I, 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 
I don't know that I, I really wanted. Uh, I mean, it was such, such a long time ago. When I fired you, I asked you what you wanted to do. You said you have a few rooms upstairs. A real English pub. Did, did I say that? Yes. I was so happy that Pig never went into the territory that many thought it would, this John Wick with pigs, instead sticking with what really makes a great cinematic dish, a combination of simple ingredients cooked to perfection. At number two, and I am going to keep this as spoiler-free as possible because I think this film is going to hit fantastically if you don't know anything about it, directed by John Watts, at number two, Spider-Man No Way Home. Ever since I got bit by that spider, I've only had one week where my life has felt normal. That was when you found out. When you botched that spell where you wanted everyone to forget the Peter Parker Spider-Man, we started getting some visitors. Now, unfortunately, even the poster kind of spoils some things and the internet ran wild with spoilers and speculations, so you probably have a good idea of some of the goings-on here. But anyway, this film starts where exactly where the last one ended. Peter Parker has been unmasked and is no longer able to separate his normal life from his high-profile, high-stakes life as part of the Avengers. Because of this, he goes to Doctor Strange to help him get things back to normal, but the spell that's cast leads to dire consequences. This, of course, forces Peter Parker to understand exactly what it means to be Spider-Man. This is a rare film that I saw in theaters in 2021, and it was definitely the most fun I had watching a movie this year. The story is so incredibly inventive and gives characters that you might not have loved the first time around new life. It also manages to move Peter Parker's journey into really interesting territory and presents some really intriguing consequences for the MCU as it heads into the newest phase. The action is really well done, the comedy is very funny, something that can feel forced in certain Marvel films. In fact, there's this conversation had on the side of the Statue of Liberty between three characters, and it's something that I'd honestly watch for hours alone. Just those three talking was such a blast. This film had moments of genuine surprise, it has moments of emotion that brought literal tears to my eyes, and gave Tom Holland the opportunity to showcase his acting skills. I didn't watch a film this year that gave me a bigger smile than this one. That's Spider-Man No Way Home at number two. And at number one, my favorite film of 2021, directed by Bo Burnham. This movie's called Inside. Inside is a one-man musical comedy special that was written, lit, shot, performed, and edited by Bo Burnham by himself in one room over the course of the first year of being quarantined by the pandemic. What's presented here is exactly how, as someone who actually took the pandemic seriously out of the gates, I felt being kind of isolated over the better part of a year. I wasn't a big fan of Burnham's early stuff. His YouTube work and his first few specials always felt a bit uneven, and even when there were clever jokes, overall, they felt a little immature and crass. But after seeing 8th Grade, which he wrote and directed in, what, 2018, and now this, I honestly think, I honestly think that Bo Burnham will win an Oscar at some point because he is that talented. Now, when you have a musical special, of course, the focus is the songs. The track list here is equal parts comedy and poignancy, but they're all catchy. Tunes like Comedy, which illustrates his struggle with trying to be funny while all this terrible shit's happening around us, and How the World Works, a simple indictment of the system we're all trapped in, somehow managed to toe the line between juggling actual issues and being funny in such a perfect way. 
Others like White Woman's Instagram and Sexting are funny as hell and super catchy. I mean, every song on here sounds complex, well-produced, and I dare you to listen to them and not get one stuck in your head for days. I saw this film three times, once by myself, once with my wife, and another time with my mom. And each time, I had one of the songs stuck in my head to the point of annoyance, literally days after. Pour me a drink and clear my schedule. I'm a FaceTime with my mom tonight. These 40 minutes are essential. I'm a FaceTime with my mom tonight. I call, she answers, and her hair is wet. I say, did you just shower? She says, how'd you guess? I say, your hair is wet. She says, oh yeah. I tell my boys I need some space, yeah. I'm a FaceTime with my mom tonight. She'll hold her iPhone 5 no further than six inches from her face, yeah. I'm a FaceTime with my mom tonight. She says, oh, look who's here, say hi to dad. He says, how you doing, but I say I'm not so bad. And that's the deepest talk we've ever had. Watching as she looks for her glasses, I'm a FaceTime with my mom tonight. The craft that it took to make this film is astounding. During the film, we get to see some of his work behind the scenes, lighting, fumbling with things to make the room seem different from different angles, and it works. There are several scenes here that are hard to believe came from the same room. The entire thing is just a testament to his talent, and I left this so impressed. I am convinced Bo Burnham is a genius at number one, Inside. Now, there are a lot of movies left to talk about. We've got some superlative categories. We've got the worst five. We've got the five movies I'm most excited to see in the first half of 2022. But first, I asked the Twitterverse to chime in with their favorite films of the year, and here are some of the responses we got. Bruce Perky from Find Your Film says, Psycho Gorman, great choice. Derek McDuff, who was on the show, past guest of the show, says, The film buff in me wants to say The Green Knight, but I really love Spider-Man. Friend of the show, Chauncey Talese, says The Mitchells vs. The Machines, which of course made my honorable mentions. Pete from the Middle Class Film Class also, past guest on the show, says Titane or Titan, however you say it. Dion Sanchez from Words of Heart said In the Heights was her favorite film. Uh, your next favorite movie, The at YNF Movie Pod said Malignant was probably his favorite. Josh Hatcher, Coda, or The Harder They Fall. The worst film he saw was The Woman in the Window. Film Shake, Pig and Bo Burnham's Inside, great choices there. Stew World Order, Spider-Man No Way Home. The New World Pictures Podcast said favorite was Psycho Gorman. Chris Blevins said Pixar's Luca was his favorite of the year. Real Talk, a movie podcast, said Spider-Man No Way Home and No Time to Die. Ooh, he liked James Bond a lot. And Force 5 superfan Sean Aguilar says Nobody, hands down, was my number one for 2021. All right, first up in the extra categories here, we've got the funniest film of 2021, and that honor is going to go to Bad Trip. Well, the hitchhiker bit didn't work out great, but... There were all these unsuspecting people walking around, and we just basically turned Chris Rock loose, and he went crazy. I don't need this shit! I hit whoever I want! You remind me of Steph Curry, motherfucker. Steph Curry, motherfucker. 
What's with the name, Colin? Do you have a license? Yes, somewhere. I got a bullet somewhere, too. I'm looking straight ahead. I'm getting too old for this shit. Yes, Bad Trip, I had a blast with this one. In the spirit of Bad Grandpa and certain jackass skits, this is a part scripted comedy, part prank show starring Eric Andre and Lil Rel Howery as Chris and Bud as they steal a car from Bud's sister Trina, played by Tiffany Haddish, who escapes from jail and comes looking for her car and her little brother. It's definitely the most I've laughed during a film this year. Such a blast. Next up, best documentary category, best doc. Sean Aguilar's ears perk up. That one goes to Woodstock 99, Peace, Love, and Rage. This is a terrifying documentary about a show that broke down from all directions, leading to mass chaos, riots, and ultimately death. The incompetence displayed is as infuriating as the organizer's lack of accountability as he tries to defend his actions in front of the camera. It also makes Moby look like a douche. The runner-up in this category is a documentary called Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, a history of folk horror that Severin released as part of its folk horror box set this year. If you're looking to get into folk horror, that is the easiest starting point. The doc covers a ton of films, but that box set is amazing. It has so many different options for you. Let's switch gears here. We're going to head over to television, the best horror TV show I saw this year, and there were a few good ones, but the best horror TV show I saw was Midnight Mass on Netflix. Mike Flanagan continues to make his mark in the horror world, and Midnight Mass was chock full of surprises and amazing horror beats. It's about a small island community whose priest, Monsignor Pruitt, has gone on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. A young priest comes to take his place for a while, and strange things start happening on the island. Hamish Linklater plays the new priest, Father Paul Hill, and if I had to choose my favorite TV performance, his might top the list. Just top-notch acting, a great show all around, great suspense, great visuals, and a, a, a type of monster story that is probably going to be pretty new for you. The best non-horror TV show I watched this year was the dazzling action crime saga Gangs of London. During my original review, I compared it to Game of Thrones with nice suits, and I stand by that. There are so many warring families here, they're all really entertaining, they're all really different. The show, produced and created by Gareth Evans from The Raid Films, has some of the best action that I've ever seen in any medium. If you're not hooked after the bar fight in the first episode of this show, I'm not sure what to tell you. It is brutal, it's unrelenting, there's all kinds of great action here. I cannot wait for season two. Also, move over Idris Elba, Sope Derisu, who plays Elliot Finch in this show, is my pick for the next James Bond. Just awesome. The best TV special I saw this year that doesn't really fall into any category might be the piece that affected me the most while watching it, and that's Derek Delgadio's In and of Itself, which was a Hulu special. This is the one film that really made me hard cry this year. It's a one-man show that is so meticulously crafted with pieces of storytelling, magic, and audience participation that left me absolutely floored when it was all over. I loved this show. Amazing piece of art. All right, on to the best performances of the year. In terms of male performances, look, I already talked about it, and that's Nicolas Cage and Pig. Instead of draining that well again, because that's my number one here, we're going to talk about some honorable mentions in that category. I had two other people vying for that award. Vincent London as Vincent in Titan, or Titan, and James McAvoy as Edmund Murray in My Son. I thought you were going to say you were sorry. That's what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say sorry for beating the shit out of my boyfriend. You know we never even mentioned Ethan? 
And he's all excited about his blueprints for his new house that he's building. That he's yeah, we were really thing. excited about that. We were really excited about that. And Ethan was excited about that. And we all talked about it together as a family. Me, him and Frank. We all sat down and we discussed it. That's what we do. That's my family. And you'd know that if you asked about him, if you asked your son about him. But you don't, do you? Because you never fucking call and you never fucking do anything. You send a present on his seventh birthday. He doesn't even get the chance to talk to his dad. Have you even thought about what this all means? That your son's missing? All I've been thinking about this whole time is that I'm a bad mother, that I've done something wrong. Have you even thought for a fucking second what sort of father you are? What sort of father you've been to your son? I know, I know. I know I'm a bad dad. I know I'm never here. I know he can't rely on me. It's not my fault he's gone missing, darling. In my opinion, London's performance as a father trying to reckon with a past loss and McAvoy as a father trying to avoid a loss were both fantastic. Best female performance. This will probably surprise some people, but I don't care. Florence Pugh as Yelena Belova in both Black Widow and Hawkeye. She has really made that character her own, especially in Hawkeye. She effortlessly infuses comedy into this character and just feels like nobody else could be that character. I, I think I love her in anything, honestly, but I'm so glad that she's part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I had so much fun watching her on screen. Now, these next categories I jacked straight from the film cast, who jacked them straight from Film Spotting SVU. So shout out to both of those shows, RIP to Film Spotting SVU. This first one, the movie they didn't get. This is a movie that I loved, but critics or audiences didn't. And I'm going to go with a movie that I'm guessing just nobody saw because it has a zero, zero ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a movie called The Fable, The Killer Who Doesn't Kill. This is uh, on Netflix right now. It's a sequel to the Japanese film The Fable and follows a hitman who killed five people many years ago and injured a girl accidentally in the process, confining her to a wheelchair. Later, she ends up staying with the sixth target, leading to an inevitable intersection of the two. This is a fantastic action comedy that gets very bloody and has some of the most impressive action scenes of the year. The opening scene and a scene that sees Fable battling people on a scaffold puts the scaffold scene in Shang-Chi to shame. That's The Fable, The Killer Who Doesn't Kill. It's a Japanese film. You can find that on Netflix now. The flip side of that category is, of course, the movie I didn't get. This is a movie that critics or audiences love, but I didn't. And I think the best example of this in 2021 was Titan slash Titan. It was an interesting film that I could admire, but I just didn't like it. It felt a little too weird for me. The main character was just too unlikable. I'm actually surprised how many listeners of this show chose this as their top film of the year, but I guess that's why movies are so cool. Everybody just has different experiences. The action scene of the year best action scene goes to Gangs of London episode 5. This episode sees Darren hold up in a farmhouse contemplating the consequences of what he's done when all of a sudden an army shows up to extract him. The entire episode is a siege on this house and is so expertly done that I instantly watched the episode a second time. This is one of the best action episodes of television ever made, and it is an achievement to be celebrated. Gangs of London, episode 5, directed by Gareth Evans. I can't even pick a scene in it because the whole thing is one long action scene. And finally, speaking of action scenes, the best fight scene of the year. There were two great fight scenes on a bus, but once again, Shang-Chi falls short because the best fight of the year was Bob Odenkirk's Hutch Manziel facing off against a gang of Russians in Nobody. 
They say God doesn't close one door without opening another. Please, God, open that door. A girl alone on a bus at night? It's fucking stupid. It's stupid, hey, right? Guys, guys. What are you still doing here, old man? I'm gonna fuck you up. The choreography here kicks major ass and there's a point in which Mansell gets chucked out of a window and then just dusts himself off and re-enters the bus that is just so satisfying. Plus, it ends with a homemade tracheotomy with a fast food straw. So those are the superlative categories. Let's talk about the bottom of the barrel. Let's talk about the worst films I saw in 2021. At number five on the list of the worst of the worst, we've got Free Guy. What a waste of a good idea. This Ryan Reynolds film makes absolutely no sense if you really think about the premise as written. And Taika Waititi might be the most annoying on-screen character I saw all year. This film simply did not know who its audience was, and in trying to cater to everyone, ended up catering to no one. At number four, The Matrix Resurrections. I didn't go in expecting much from a Matrix film in 2021, but this decimated even the lowest bar I had set in my mind. The franchise that revolutionized action films for the 21st century comes in guns limp, featuring repetitive push powers from Neo and uninspired, lazily shot and choreographed action scenes. Not to mention a nonsensical story that fanboys for the series will surely be making stupid YouTube videos about for years, claiming that they've cracked the code. I contemplated turning this movie off 25 minutes in and should have listened to my instincts. At number three, I reviewed this film last week and I'm still upset I wasted an hour and a half watching John and the Hole. What a complete waste of time. A kid finds a hole and puts his family in the hole and then goes back home and wastes an hour and a half of my life before he just lets them out and they act like nothing happened. Seriously, this movie sucks, but not as much as number two's Home Sweet Home Alone. I'd never go into a Home Alone movie in 2021 expecting something that was going to win Academy Awards, but I did expect something that would be fun to watch with my family. Instead, we got a slog with the most unlikable protagonist since Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull. This was, by far, the most confused film I saw in 2021 that tried to make us root for everyone and in turn made us root for nobody. And finally, at number one, the worst film I saw this year is Netflix's $200 million Red Notice, the movie that proved that money can't buy happiness. This film is devoid of soul, of spark, of life. It's an algorithm come to life, and for all the fun I'm sure people had on set, absolutely none of it showed up on screen. And with a price tag that large, you'd think that at least things would look good, but this film had some of the worst CGI this side of Escape from L.A. The characters are unlikable, the plot is stupid, and the action was groan-inducing. Red Notice was a disappointment from start to finish, and I can't believe it came with a price tag this high. Everyone involved in making this film should be ashamed with what they cranked out. Alright, let's get that negativity and chuck it into the recycle bin, because it's time for the films I'm most looking forward to in the first half of 2022. These are my five most anticipated coming out here. 
at number five, and these are in order of release date, not in order of how excited I am to see them. On March 4th, DC will release yet another version of Batman, simply titled The Batman, this time directed by Matt Reeves. I am a big Robert Pattinson fan, and I'm convinced that anyone who isn't is still just caught up with him and his involvement in the Twilight series. He was great in Good Time, he was great in Tenet, and The Lighthouse, and now he takes his turn as a young Bruce Wayne. Paul Dano as the Riddler will be fantastic, and the film also features Zoe Kravitz, Barry Keoghan, Jeffrey Wright, John Turturro, Peter Sarsgaard, Andy Serkis, and Colin Farrell. Now that is a cast. It's directed by Matt Reeves, who directed Cloverfield and the two most recent Planet of the Apes sequels. The film is in good hands. I'm a little worried about the near three-hour runtime, but if it's good, the time won't matter. That's The Batman releasing on March 4th. At number four on March 18th, the newest A24 horror film X starts its limited run. Yes, it's just called X, and it's about a film production crew that comes out to a secluded farmhouse in Texas to shoot an adult film, but the owners of the farm take a special interest in their young guests. As night falls, the couple's leering interest turns violent. This one is written and directed by Ty West, one of the more exciting horror directors working right now, and it sounds like just a blast. The MPAA warnings alone include strong bloody violence and gore, strong sexual content, graphic nudity, drug use, and language. What's not to be excited about there? At number three on April 8th, five assassins find themselves on the same train with their own agendas in the film Bullet Train. This one is directed by David Leach, director of John Wick, Atomic Blonde, and Deadpool 2, and stars Brad Pitt, Sandra Bullock, Brian Tyree Henry, Aaron Taylor Johnson, Logan Lerman, Michael Shannon, and Andrew Koji. This is adapted from the book of the same name, which was a massive hit in its native Japan, and is described as an original and propulsive thriller that fizzes with an incredible energy and surprising humor as its complex net of double crosses and twists unwind. I'm in for anything David Leach does. I love Brad Pitt. I love Michael Shannon. I love Brian Tyree Henry. This sounds like a blast. Bullet Train at number three. On April 22nd, we've got The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which of course was going to be on my list. It might be the most bizarre film and the one that has the potential of being either the best movie ever made or the worst movie ever made. This stars Nicolas Cage playing himself. Strapped for cash, he agrees to make a paid appearance at a billionaire superfan's birthday party, but is really an informant for the CIA. This also stars Pedro Pascal, Tiffany Haddish, and Neil Patrick Harris. I cannot believe this film is getting made in the first place, and I cannot wait to see it. And at number one, at number one of the things I'm most looking forward to in the first half of 2022, how do you kick off the summer movie season properly? Do you do it with Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness? No way. You do it with Tom Cruise, and you do it with Top Gun. Top Gun 2, baby. Cue the Kenny Loggins because I'm excited about this one. After more than 30 years of service as one of the Navy's top aviators, Pete Mitchell is where he belongs, pushing the envelope as a courageous test pilot and dodging the advancement in rank that would ground him. Look, June's got some interesting movies with Lightyear and Jurassic World Domination, but Top Gun is the definition of summer blockbuster, and Tom Cruise is the last real action star that we've got. He probably learned how to fly an F-16 in a week for this film, and I can't wait to see it. 
What was your favorite film of the year? Which movies did you hate this year? Let me know on social media, Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5Podcast on Instagram, and your comment just might make it to next week's show. Of course, if you liked what you heard, please review the show wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends to listen as well. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Till next time, stay safe, stay sane, stay free of COVID, God, please, and go watch some amazing films from 2021.